All right. Well, today we're wrapping up this series called Letters from My Future Self. And a couple weeks ago, I said that really this series came out of a time in which uh, at the end of last year, I just kind of sat down and I was just kind of uh, thinking through, you know, just some things that maybe I needed to work on in my own life. And I thought, you know, if I were to receive a letter from my future self, what are some of the things that I might hear from myself just based upon what I know some of my current, you know, and ongoing struggles often are. And uh, honestly, like the list that I came up with, like this would have been way too long of the series. And so I had to kind of, you know, narrow it down to three. And I just said, that's really where this series came out of. What do I need to hear? And uh, in that sense, this has been a very uh, kind of personal and somewhat of a vulnerable series because I just know that these are uh, three things at the top of the list that I need to hear. And I'm just trusting that probably a fair number of you need to hear it as well. And so if I were to receive a letter from my future self, I think undoubtedly I would have something to say to myself about anxiety. And that was week one. And then I know for sure that I would need to talk to myself about learning to forgive others so that I am not entrapped in a bitter heart. And Ryan did a great job with that last week. And then uh, this third uh, thing made, made it on the list as well that we're going to talk about today as we wrap this up. And, and if I were to put this in letter form, it might say it like this. Uh, Dear Aaron, um, please put money in its place. Now, I want to start today's teaching uh, with just a personal confession. All right, here's my personal confession, is that periodically throughout uh, my adult life, I have stressed and worried about money and personal finances, and I'm just going to go out on a limb here and say that I'm not the only one. Uh, according to the American Psychological Association, about 75% of us stress about money and personal finances like on a regular basis. Now, now here's the thing, regardless of what you make. And that's the thing that, like, when I was a younger man, like, newly married, making a whopping $19,000 a year, you know, she married me for my money. And, uh, and, you know, like, all this, like, a student loan debt and, like, a, you know, rent for the first time. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, one day it won't always be this way because I'll get a raise. You know, I'll get a promotion. Like, like, we won't be in this space. And once I get to a certain income level, then I can relax. Then I can enjoy life. Then, then I can finally be generous. But not only has that not necessarily been personally true, it's also not statistically true. Uh, there's an economist by the name of H.F. Clark who came up with something known as the 25% rule. And some of you might recognize this, this idea of, um, for, for most of us, we say, you know, we would achieve financial peace, whatever, whatever that kind of means for you, uh, if we just made about 25% more. Like if we made 25% more, regardless of what your current income level is now, then we'd finally relax, then we'd finally enjoy life, then we'd finally be generous if we just made 25% more. And that's statistically not true because, as many of you could probably attest to this, what ends up happening is that the chains move. Like you get a raise, you get a promotion, and then you have a tendency to sort of ratchet up your lifestyle with the raise, more kids, more responsibilities, you know, a recession or two, inflation, and you're like, man, I'm making way more than I ever thought that I would. Why is it that financial peace continues to evade me? And there's an economic reason for that, but there's also a spiritual reason for that. So here's what I've learned and am continuing to learn about myself. And it's simply this statement right here. If my 
financial world is unhealthy in any way. Like if I'm upside down financially in any way, what does that mean? Well, um, you know, for starters, like too much debt. And I think most of us would go, yeah, that's a no-brainer. Like too much debt, I'm not going to be at financial peace. Uh, not saving enough. The Bible teaches in Proverbs that a wise man uh, saves an inheritance for their children's children which requires at least some sort of intentional forecasting and savings plan. But here's another one. Uh, maybe I'm saving um, too much, right? And uh, that leads uh, to maybe the next one is uh, like I'm not willing or I'm unable to be generous. Uh, what about this one right here? Stealth stinginess. You know what I'm talking about there? Stealth stinginess happens like when you go to lunch with a friend and the waitress comes over and says, one check or two. And in that split second, you're like, want you, right? You're like waiting for the other person to go with their saying, and you're really kind of hoping maybe they'll pay because you just had an unexpected bill due. Um, I guess I'm the only one. This is really quiet in here, right? You guys are like, we never do that, pastor. Like, we're judging you. All right, so uh, maybe you're just stressed about it all the time. What about this? Uh, is it causing arguments with your spouse or loved ones on a regular basis? That's an indication. It's unhealthy. I'll just give you a couple more. You're tempted to do unethical or dishonest things. And then the last one, maybe you're taking on more works, trips, and projects to provide maybe for the family you're seeing less and less. And I would imagine maybe some of you could even add a couple of things to that list. And if any of those are true, that might be a signal or an indication that your financial world is unhealthy or upside down. And it leads to the rest of the statement. Uh, it's just a matter of time before that begins to affect, or we could even say it rather this way, it's actually reflecting the condition of your heart. And this is why Jesus would say these words in Matthew chapter 6, verse 21. Jesus would say, for wherever your treasure is. And that word treasure is just the Bible word for money. And when Jesus said that, he wasn't talking about a little chest with gold coins at the end of a rainbow. Right? He was talking about money. That's the Bible word. He goes, wherever your money is, there your heart will be also. And so Jesus knew this really important truth that my bank account and the condition of my heart are intimately linked together. And for a long time, I didn't see the connection between the two. And I thought, well, you know, uh, if my heart is in a healthy space, then my personal finances will be in a healthy space. Jesus would say it's the other way around. If your finances are in a healthy space, then your heart is going to be in a healthy space. Now listen, I'm not talking about greed. I'm, I'm talking about misplaced trust. In other words, in who or what am I looking to to give me this sense of peace that I'm longing for in my heart? I can remember when I was in the fifth grade, the, very vividly this conversation that I had with my dad. And this is where it began for me, where I began to put my trust uh, in, in money rather than the provider of the money. And I remember talking to my dad. My dad drove at the time a 1987 Ford F-150 pickup truck. It was baby blue with chrome wheels. And this thing was so sweet. I loved it so much. And uh, I remember uh, I was riding with my dad. We were going somewhere. And my dad had actually had a couple business deals that went down in the 80s that uh, um, kind of uh, got him in, into some financial uh, challenges. And so he had to make some difficult decisions. And one of those was he needed to trade that truck in and get something less expensive. And I remember he, the day he told me, and I was like so bummed. I was like, Dad, don't get rid of the truck. Like, I love this truck so much. And I'll never forget what he said because it lodged itself not only in my self-conscious but in my heart. 
He said, well, Aaron, it's either the truck or groceries. And I remember at the time, like, I didn't even know what to do with that. Like, that, that it, it was like something that impacted me so much that I sort of buried it. Like, I sort of stuffed it. I didn't bring it up or think about it until uh, I'm a young man in my 20s, newly married, all kinds of financial obligations. And that thought, like, reemerged in my heart once again. And I remember thinking to myself, I never, ever want to be in that position ever. And so what happened is, is that I put way too much emphasis. I, here's, here's, here's what, it, it was subtle. I thought to myself, I need to be the one who provides. Now listen, I, you and I are not the, now it's a noble thing to want to provide for your family, and you should. But you, we've got to understand this. You are not provider. God is provider. We are stewards of what he provides. And so God is owner. I am manager. Right, so, so God entrusts us with a, a, a certain amount of resources, whatever that may be, and then we've got to order this right. And so what, what can end up happening in our lives is whatever you and I ultimately put our trust in, like by definition, that's a God. And so when we begin to put our trust in our resources, what ends up happening is we're like, well, it's up to me to provide. And uh, we end up finding our, here's a big one. We find our sense of security in our bank account. Anybody like me, you've got this, this number in your bank account. What, you know, it's sort of subjective. And when your bank account balance drops below that line, you start to feel uneasy. It's this idea of that I've begun to put my trust in this amount. Uh, we find our sense of security and identity. Now, here's the problem with all of that. Only God can give us a sense of security and identity. Only he can provide. And I think that in times of like economic crisis, like what we're in right now, like, you know, are we in a recession? Are we not? Like inflation, all the stuff that's happening right now uh, in a time of maybe um, uh, unemployment or maybe uh, massive credit card debt or maybe you lose a job, whatever it may be. What ends up happening is that it reveals what we have ultimately been putting our trust in. And money more than anything else becomes God's chief competition for the affection of our hearts. It becomes a functional savior. We begin to look to it to do for us what only God can do. Which is one of the reasons why, uh, regardless of where you land politically, the number one issue for the left and the right is the economy. It's because it has become our functional savior. It is the thing that we look to. And I think this is also the reason why Jesus taught on the subject of money more than any other subject, including the subjects of heaven and hell combined. Did you know that Jesus taught on the subject of money more than love and forgiveness? And some of you just misheard me and you're leaning over to the person you came with and you're like, he didn't really do that. I didn't say he taught about giving. I said he taught about money, and there's a difference. And oftentimes we get a little bit uncomfortable when we talk about money in the church for all kinds of reasons, and I understand all the reasons, because we just assume that if a preacher's going to talk about it, he just means give it. But the Bible has 800 verses in the Bible that address this subject, including budgeting, saving, debt reduction, investing. There's all kinds of wisdom in the scriptures over this issue of our lives primarily because it be, can become God's chief competition on the throne of our hearts. And we oftentimes overlook the wisdom that God's word gives us. So here's what I want you to, to hear me say really clearly today. And I'm speaking to 
um, primarily Christians in the room. If you're not a Christian, if you're not a follower of God, then I think that the wisdom of the scriptures, you can apply this to your finances and you'll be like uh, blessed for it. But I'll primarily want to say this to Christians. Um, Personal finances is a discipleship issue. Like what you and I, how we think about, how we relate to our bank accounts, that is a discipleship issue. And the Bible speaks so much to this issue. And if we don't look to God's words to disciple us in this, here's my question. Where else are we going to look? Who else is going to disciple us? If we don't disciple the next generation, the culture gladly will and is. So um, is Visa going to do it? And I don't think Visa is going to disciple us in this, right? Should we look to the spending habits of the government? You know, to, no, I hope not, right? So we've got to look to the wisdom of God's word. And Jesus would say this in uh, Matthew 6, 24. He says, you cannot, notice the definitive word there, you cannot. He didn't say it's difficult. He didn't say it's going to be a challenge. He didn't say it's going to be hard but possible. He says, you cannot serve both God and uh, money. And actually, the Aramaic word there is mammon. So this is not necessarily like looking to a dollar. Um, this is, if any of you remember uh, when we went through the book of Romans a couple years ago, and then this last year we went through Daniel, and I said that um, Babylon was a real city um, that no longer exists, but the spirit of Babylon lives on behind the culture in which we live. The same thing is true with mammon. Mammon is the spirit behind the dollar, and it is a very confused system. And so Jesus would say, like, money is not um, good or bad. Money is neutral. Jesus would say, um, mammon is the spirit behind the dollar that is enslaving you. It's the thing that causes you to um, hold tightly to your bank account or the thing that causes you stress or arguments with your spouse. That is mammon. That is the spirit behind it. And he says, your heart will be um, committed to either God or mammon. It cannot be both. And that's what Jesus teaches. And so we could summarize maybe everything that the Bible teaches about it this way. Money is a great servant. It is a horrible master. It's a great, so, so in 2023, you and I are going to put, need to put money in its place. We're going to need to lead it so that it doesn't lead us. And it's a test that we all face. And it's a test that a guy named Elijah faces as well. So if you have uh, your portable flat screen in your pocket, go ahead and pull it out. And find uh, 1 Kings 17. If you recall two weeks ago, we started this series with Elijah. Elijah is this prophet, and we're going to end the series with him as well. Elijah went through anxiety. Elijah is also going to go through this challenge as well of trusting in God as provider. So let me give you a little bit of context (coughs) for what we see happening (coughs) in 1 Kings 17. Um, There is this um, drought that is in the land. It is caused by this famine. And Elijah is a prophet. So he comes to the people and he basically says, uh, hey, uh, God is withholding the rain. And here's why. The people were worshiping the false god of rain by the name of Baal. Right? So I want you to see the connection. People, their heart and their affections were wrapped up in Baal, who is the false god of rain. And so God says, okay, well, I'll withhold the rain. And I just can't help but notice some similarities between a famine and a recession. 
And as you might imagine, Elijah's message was not a very popular one, either then or today. And so the people wanted to kill Elijah. Somebody should have warned Elijah of the occupational hazards of being a prophet. And God uh, says to him, hey, Elijah, um, I will keep you safe and I will provide for you. And he tells him how. We'll pick it up in verse 2. Follow along with me. The Lord said to Elijah, go to the east and hide by Kareth Brook, near where it enters the Jordan River. Drink from the brook and eat what the ravens, not the football team, birds, all right, Eat what the ravens bring you, for I have commanded them to bring you food. All right, so let me just stop right there and go, this is so unusual. All right, God, okay, for, star- here, for starters, God's the one who caused the famine and the drought. And God is going to lead Elijah away from the Jordan, which, by the way, is the source of water in the middle of a drought. He's go- he goes, go the opposite direction of the Jordan and it's uh, totally okay because you know I'll just have some ravens bring you some food like God could you just door dash me a sandwich I mean it's like I don't think that's very sanitary like I, I I'm not quite sure of the whole raven meal plan God like that doesn't seem like a very wise strategy but as we're going to see all throughout this story uh, Elijah's got more faith than I do so it says in verse 5, Elijah did as the Lord told him, and he camped beside Kareth Brook, east of the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat each morning and evening, and he drank from the brook. So what, here's what I want you to see. Elijah was in need, and God provided. Now, God provided in a very unorthodox way. God provided by having a bunch of ravens deliver him food. And uh, I, I've got to ask the question, like, 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 why? This is just one of those things where it's just like, this is just seems so unusual. Why would God have ravens bring Elijah food? And I think the reason why is because God wanted Elijah to trust him no matter how crazy it might have sounded. And I think that right there is, is the challenge. I know at least for me when it comes to finances, and it's this question right here. Am I willing to trust God as provider even when financially it doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. And sometimes what the Bible teaches us about like uh, money and material possessions doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Now, not so much the budgeting, saving, investing parts. Like all that actually makes really, really good sense. I've read a number of finance books that are not uh, Christian whatsoever, and they will oftentimes borrow from these principles that we see in the scriptures, including uh, there's almost always a chapter on tithing, and it's never connected to anything spiritual. So what the Bible has to say about all that stuff is really, really sound. It's usually what the Bible says about generosity that's counterintuitive, and it just doesn't feel right. And let me give you an example. Most of us have probably heard uh, this principle. It's found in the scriptures. It is more blessed to give than to receive. And I could ask for a showing of hands about how many of you believe that, but I'm not going to because I know that most of the hands are going to go up in the room because you're in church. Like even if you don't believe it, you're like, well, yeah, it's like, I don't want people to see my hands down on that question. All right, so I think most of us would raise our hands like, yes, we believe that. It is more blessed to give than to receive. But I would just um, presume that, um, like, we don't really believe that. Let me, let me give you an example. So uh, let's just say right after the service is over today, you're walking out to your car, and I go, like, running after you, and I catch up to you, and I say, hey, uh, listen, uh, this is just between me and you. Uh, I've got $1,000 in my pocket. You can have it right now and just spend it on whatever you want. 
or you can take $1,000 of your own money and go give it to somebody else in need. Uh, you decide, this is between me and you, I'm not going to tell anybody what you decide, wink, wink. Now, I don't care who you are, you're going to have to stop and think about that for a minute, right? Like now, now you, I would say the vast majority of you would probably go, oh, yeah, okay, I'm going to take $1,000 of my own money, I'm going to give it to somebody else, because I really do believe that it's more blessed to give than to receive. But you're not going to do it that easily. Like, you're, you're going to stop and you're going to really wrestle. I know I would. Like, I would really, like, wrestle with that. But if I really, really believed it, like, it is more blessed to give than to receive, I'd be like, thank you so much. Thank you for this opportunity. I'm going to go do it now. But yet it feels counterintuitive. And I think the same thing is true in the circumstances that Elijah is in. And it doesn't seem to make a whole lot of a sense to Elijah either, but he trusts God anyway. He obeys and God supplies. Now look what it says in verse 7. After a while, the brook dried up, for there was no rainfall anywhere in the land. All right, so just so we're clear, uh, God um, sends Elijah to the brook, and Elijah obeys and goes to the brook, and then now uh, the brook is beginning to dry up. And it's just a question that I just want to ask any of you today, any of you standing next to a dried up brook right now. And you feel like you've been obedient to God. You feel like you've been trying to do things his way. You, you feel like you've been trying to honor him in this area of your life, but, but the bank account is running dry. And maybe you're late on your mortgage payment. Maybe uh, college tuition just came due. Maybe you're watching some of your investments dry up in this economy. And you're standing next to a brook and you're saying, God, I hope you notice that the water level is dropping and you're waiting for him to do something. And in the wait, that's usually when you, it becomes very clear to you in who or what you've ultimately put your trust. And I think here's the challenge, is to trust God even when the future seems uncertain. Even when you're standing next to a brook and it appears as if it is drying up and you say, God, I'm going to put my trust in you I'm going to trust what you say rather than what I feel. Uh, several years ago, I read a book by a guy named Henry Nowen called Sabbatical Journeys. And in it, he talks about um, how he uh, befriended some trapeze artists. And he said that um, he got to know them and their craft. And, and if you know anything at all about trapeze artists, there is a, a flyer and there is a catcher. And... and the two of them have a very specific job, and they can't get that uh, confused. And the, the job of the flyer is to let go of the bar and reach out and trust that the catcher will catch them. Now, that's not hard, but that's difficult, right? Like, when you're the one flying through the air, like, everything within you wants to take control. And, but they said that where most accidents happen is when the flyer tries to catch the catcher rather than reaching out their hands and trusting that the catcher will catch them. And oftentimes I found myself like in that situation financially, like when the brook is run dry and I feel like I'm flying through the air, everything within me says, catch the catcher. Everything within me says, hit the panic button, uh, hold on to money, 
um, worry about it, obsess about it, get a side hustle, right? And make sure that I can provide. And God simply says to you and to me, I, I want you to, to trust. Trust that the catcher will catch you. And in verse 9, God gives Elijah some further instructions on what to do because now the brook is drying up. So look what it says in verse 8. Then the Lord said to Elijah, go in and live. Circle, highlight, underline the word live. Go and live in the village of Zarephath near the city of Sidon. All right, so he doesn't say go visit. He doesn't say, hey, you know, pack a bag. He says, no, pack your boxes. Now what you need to understand about Zarephath is this is enemy territory. Elijah is an outsider there. So this last week as I was studying this, I thought to myself, you know, if I'm Elijah and I'm trying to anticipate what God is doing, here's what I would assume. Oh, okay, I get it. Like God's going to move me to Zarephath and uh, I'm going to bring my unique skill set to the table. I'm going to meet somebody who's got a, you know, a network in this foreign place. And the two of us are going to come up with a business idea and a plan. We're going to go pitch it to Shark Tank. And then we're all going to get filthy rich because of this like new idea. That's probably what God's got in mind. The brook dried up. Now he's given us a business plan. That, that's what's happening. All right, let's look at the text and see if that's actually the case. Verse 9. I have instructed a widow there to feed you. Okay, no business plan. Right? No shark tank. In fact, you got to go, you got to sit there and go, what? No, wait a second. Come on, God, really? First, the raven meal plan. And now you're going to impose upon a poor widow. Doesn't make any sense at all. Now, to Elijah's credit, he still believes. Look at verse 10. So he went to Zarephath. And as he arrived at the gates of the village, he saw a widow gathering sticks. And he asked her, would you please bring me just, just a little, just, just a little water in a cup. And keep in mind, they're in a drought. So he's trying to minimize his need. You ever do that? And so he's just like, hey, just bring me a little, you know, just, just a little sippy cup of water. And she, I think she was probably very annoyed by this. Like she didn't know who he was and but I think she's just doing it to be polite. She goes to get the water. And then look at, look at what it says in verse 11. As she was going to get it, he called to her, and bring me a bite of bread too. Right? So it's like just a little sippy cup and just a little bit of bite of bread. And that was the last straw for her. And look at the widow's response in verse 12. Um, I uh, totally have a ton of empathy for her. Look at what she says. She says, I swear by the Lord uh, what's the next word? Your God, not my God. You're a foreigner. Like your God has caused this drought and this famine. I swear by your, the God that I do not have allegiance to, that I don't have a single, notice all the minimalist language. She doesn't have a single piece of bread in the house. She only has a handful of flour left in the jar and a little cooking oil in the bottom of the jug. And then she says this, I was just gathering a few sticks to cook this last meal, and then my son and I will die. To which, you know, if I'm Elijah, I'm going, so is that a no? I mean, it's like, it's like, I mean, just notice like this, this demonstrative language, and she's irritated. Now, if I'm Elijah, I, I'm immediately going, I'm so sorry. Like, I didn't mean to put, like, you're right, you're right. Like, but um, that, that would have been my, my response. And I just want to kind of push pause right here on the story and ask a question that really kind of, it bothers me a little bit. If I'm really honest as I read this narrative, it, it honestly bothers me. And here's the questions, two words. Why 
Why her? In fact, in the, in the New Testament, it says that pure religion, undefiled religion, is looking after orphans and widows in their distress, not taking their last meal. So why would Eli- God tell Elijah to do this? Why would he say to this widow, you be generous? Because it just seems to me like there would have been a whole bunch of other people in that town that would have been much better off to actually step up and meet these needs. Namely, just, I don't know, read the names off of the Forbes list. Or just look at the, somebody who's riding the nicest camel or what I don't know. It's like, like who would, would, would have more resources to be able to provide Elijah? And I think that there's a part of us that really can relate to her in the sense that when we have fallen on difficult financial times, when it's our 401k that's down, when it's our student loan payments that are due, when it's our credit cards that are maxed, when it's our job loss, we, we excuse ourselves from what God says about generosity and we say, well, I've got a pass. I think that my neighbor can actually step up and meet this need. Um, God, have you seen what they drive? I think they have enough. God, have you seen her handbag? She doesn't think we know how much she spent on it, but oh, we know, we know. Like we saw it on Pinterest, all right? I mean, so, so it's like, so we like, they've got more margin. And so here's what we do financially. We do, it, we do this the same in every other area of life. We compare our insides with other people's outsides. And we just assume by looking at them, well, God, clear, you, they have enough. Why don't you ask them? Here's the principle that we learn from God asking this widow. God invites everyone to be generous regardless of circumstances because it's not about an amount, it's about the heart. So several uh, years ago, my wife and I went to go see a movie and uh, the the theater was relatively packed and we were kind of sitting in the, I like to sit in the middle, kind of up towards the top and about halfway through the movie, the sound goes out. So the, the picture's still playing, but the sound's out. And uh, so I was like, oh, man, you know, maybe it'll come on in another minute or two. And a minute or two goes by, no sound. And here's the thing. Uh, I started to go, man, somebody needs to go say something. But not me. Like, I'm in the middle up towards the back. I'd have to climb over all these people. Here's what I started to do. I started to judge the people sitting on the aisles. And I was like, they're in a position where they could easily slip out, go talk to management, come back, no sweat. They don't have to climb over anybody. But they're not moving. They're just sitting there stuffing their faces with milk duds and popcorn. And we're just like watching, like we're like back in the 1920s or something, watching this motion picture. And then my wife kind of said, you know, you need to go say something. So I got up and went and I said something. All right. So, and I think oftentimes that's what happens. I think uh, especially like when it comes to the body of Christ, as we sort of look around and we say, well, you know, somebody needs to step up and meet that need, but not me. Because I'm not in a position to. And one of the things that we just learned from this is that God takes away all of our excuses. Because if he asked this widow to step up and to meet a need, then why would he not ask me to as well? In 2 Corinthians 9.11, Paul writes this. He goes, you will be enriched. Right? There's a difference between being rich and enriched in every way so that you can always, always, like regardless of circumstances, be generous. I think the other lesson that we learn from her is simply this. God is more interested in our availability, not our ability. And one of the dominant narratives of the Bible is that God accomplishes great things through our weakness. 
And to God, it is not the amount for him. I mean, you know it's not the amount for him. God already owns everything. He owns a cattle on a thousand hills. He's like, I'm not interested in your breadcrumbs. I already own the whole feast. It's about your heart. And since your heart is connected to your treasure, he wants your heart. That's why he asks you to trust him with your treasure. And so let me go back to my original question because I've got an answer. Why did God choose this widow? And I think that the reason why he chose the widow is perhaps the same reason why he chose a shepherd boy named David to take down a giant named Goliath with a few smooth stones and a slingshot. I think it's the reason why he chose a teenage girl named Mary to be the mother of Jesus. I think it's the reason why he chose an uneducated fisherman by the name of Peter to demonstrate that his power is made perfect in our weakness. And God says, I just want to know if you're available. I just want to know if you're willing to trust me with what you have because it's not really yours anyway. I'm the provider, you're the steward. Well, in verse 13, the golf claps on the money sermon are so good, all right? So <laughs> verse 13, verse 13, he makes her this promise. All right, here we go. Uh, Elijah says to her, I love this. He goes, don't be afraid. Go ahead and do just what you've said, but make a little bread for me. What's the word? Say it out loud. First, hold on to that. Then use what's left to prepare a meal for yourself and your son. Does anybody else just see how backwards that seems? Like if I'm Elijah and I'm imposing on this widow and I'm the guest and I'm the foreigner and uh, I'm the one who, you know, I'm not, you know, she's looking after a son. Here's what I would have said if I was Elijah. I would have said, hey, listen, why don't you go ahead and prepare a meal? And if you have a serving left over, keep me in mind. That's what I would have said. Like, hey, if you could just spare a few crumbs after you and, you and your son, make sure you guys fill your stomachs first and then give to me whatever's left over. But he doesn't say that. He says, give to me first. And once again, that seems kind of rude. That seems kind of selfish. But understand that the reason why this narrative is in the Bible is to teach you and me something about where we put our trust. And I think that is very important there that that word is there first because this is the principle that the Bible teaches over and over again. It's the principle known as first fruits. Here's the idea. As a Christian, somebody who's following after Jesus, you say, you know what, God, I'm going to be generous towards you first. Like, like the, that when I get paid, the first part of my paycheck, God, is going to go to you first. And I'm not necessarily inclined to do it that way. Like I'm inclined to pay all my bills first and then put a little bit of savings first. And then I've got anything left over, then I can be generous with it. And in fact, percentage-wise, that's what most of us do. But God would say, hey, trust me with this first. Not because God needs your money, but because he wants your heart and he knows your heart always follows your resources. Deuteronomy explains why we give to God first. Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 23 says this. The purpose of tithing, that means give God the first 10% of your pay, is to teach you to always put God first in your life and so that he can work through you to meet the needs of a hurting world. And the reason why God asks us to do this is to right-size our heart. 
And so I, I know all the objections. Like I've been a pastor for over 20 years and inevitably uh, I'll probably get an email this week from a Christian who will say, now pastor, you know that the tithe is Old Testament and we are under grace now, so it no longer applies. And I would agree and I would disagree. I would say that the tithe um, preceded the law. Like it, the law didn't come up with the tithe. The law actually reinforced the tithe. But the principle of the tithe can be found prior to the law. Therefore, the principle of the tithe can be found after the law as well. And Jesus didn't abolish the tithe. He actually affirmed it. Now, I will say this. Um, we would never treat it legalistically. It is not tied to your salvation. It's not tied to your spiritual debt. Like, in fact, 2 Corinthians says, don't give under compulsion. In other words, don't let anybody, like, twist your arm or guilt you into giving because God loves a cheerful giver, and you can't be cheerful if you feel like you're obligated to do so. It is a principle. Here's, here's what you're doing. When you trust God with the first 10%, uh, this is why the Bible never says give the tithe. The Bible always says return it bring it. So um, let's just say hypothetically that uh, Ryan and Stephanie Bramlett uh, go on vacation this next week and Ryan calls me and says, hey Aaron, I need a ride to the airport. Why don't you come over to our house and here's the deal. Um, uh, you can take our car to the airport to drop us off and just as a thank you, we'll let you drive our car uh, during the week. And I'm like, okay, great. So I, I go over, I pick up Ryan, Stephanie, their family, and I take them to the airport. Man, have, guys have a great uh, trip. And, uh, you know, I, I drive their car all week long as if it's my own, which means I'm doing lots of donuts in the parking lot and, and all that fun stuff, you know, playing, you know, music super loud. And, and so then I, 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 t I go back to the airport when they come in. I pick them up. I drive them back to their house, and I pull into the, the parking or into the driveway, and I help them kind of with their bags. And then as we're standing at the door, it gets a little bit awkward. And I look at Ryan and Stephanie, and I'm like, hey, guys, like, while you're gone, like, God's really been working on my heart over this last week. And, and Lindsay and I have been praying about it, and we've just decided that we, we want to give you this car. Ryan's going to look at me like, dude, what have you been smoking? Like, it's like, this is not your car. Like, I loaned it to you for the week. You're returning it. And that is the same thing when it comes to our resources and income. And I have a tendency to think of myself as owner. Here, here's the deal. God's like, like you're not the owner. I, I've always been the owner. You're the steward. And so you're just simply returning to me a portion of what I already have. Not because God's got financial problems, but because God desires your heart. Now, why 10%? I don't really know. Like, I, I think I could ask God that one day when we get to heaven. Here's, here's my guess, though, after doing this a really long time, is that 10% of my resources, man, that's enough to get your attention and thus form and shape your heart. It's not enough to sink you financially. But it is a step of faith, especially if you've never done it before. And I think that that's what God is after. Well, let me finish up the narrative in verse 14. It says this. But this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. There will always be. Man, that is a promise. There will always be flour and olive oil left in your containers until the time when the Lord sends rain and the crops grow again. So she did as Elijah said, and she and Elijah and her family continued to eat for how many days? Many days. There was always enough. There was always enough flour and oil, olive oil left in the containers just as the Lord had promised through Elijah. So let me wrap this up by just giving you two takeaways, all right, from this narrative, right? Here's the first one. Would you commit 
to taking the next step in your financial stewardship. Whatever that might look like for you. So I said this a little bit earlier, that there's over 800 verses in the Bible that deal with things like budgeting, saving, investing, debt reduction. In what area of your life right now is causing you financial stress in which you need to get it ordered? And take a next step in that. For some of you, maybe you're living way beyond your means. Maybe, and you need to ratchet that back. Some of you, maybe you're like, you know what? I need to get rid of these credit cards. They're not doing me any good. Maybe you just need to go, you know what? We need to start saving something. You know, what, what, what next step in your stewardship? And here's the deal. We want to help with this. And so I want to encourage you to sign up for something called our Financial Foundations class. It's a five-week small group that um, gathers together, and we want to help you uh, be a better steward with what God has temporarily entrusted to you. Because here's the deal, by the way. Like, you could actually give 10% to God um, legalistically and still dishonor him with the remaining 90%. Because it's a steward over the whole. And so how do we steward uh, resources in such a way that God would say, man, well done, good and faithful servant. So I want to encourage you to sign up for Financial Foundations. We've uh, had about 750 people go through this since we started it a couple years ago. Over 90% would say they would recommend it to others. And uh, uh, 70% said budgeting and stewardship were their primary takeaways. So take a next step. Here's the next one. Would you commit to taking the next step in your financial generosity wherever you might be. Now, for some of you, that might mean like you're newly married, you just started working, and you've never really uh, uh, been tithers. Like you've never done it. And maybe you would say, you know what, we're going we're gonna to trust God with the tithe. Maybe for some of you, you've gotten away from it and you need to come back to it. Maybe for some of you, you're like, I don't know that we could do 10%, but what's your first step in that? And here's, uh, as a pastor saying this to you, I don't want anything from you. I want something for you, and I want you to trust God in this area of your life. And so that's why, you know, in Malachi, the only time God ever talks trash to us is in this area, where God says, test me in this and just see if I won't come through. And so I just want to encourage you to, to try the tithe. I've been doing this uh, pretty much every year in the 15 years that I've been here. Where I just say, hey, man, try it. Like, just try the tithe, and we'll put a safety net underneath you. Try it for three months, try it for six months, and just see what God might do. Because here's what you're doing when you're tithing. You're breaking the spirit of mammon over your life. And you're actually inviting God into your finances and finding that it's actually, you're, you're not really, it's not putting you out on anything. You're inviting God's blessing over the rest of the 90%. So I want to ask you to do this. Try the tithe for the next three months, six months, whatever it is. And at the end of that time, like if you are, if the flower jar is empty, just simply contact us and we will give it back. Uh, now, don't say, well, I'll give $1,000 in cash and I don't really have it right. All right, so like don't do that because uh, we'll know, all right. But just, go, just say, hey, well, and I've been doing that challenge every year for 15 years. You know, we've only returned uh, money one time to, to one person because, and, and we're willing to do that. And that tells me that people have tried this and God has come through in significant ways. And by the way, like I understand like some of you, maybe this is like your first time back to church in a long time, and you told your spouse, I don't want to go to church because all they ever talk about is money. And see, the first time we came, he's talking about money. And you're like, I don't, I don't trust organized religion. I don't trust pastors. This is a big church. You've got ulterior motives. Uh, I, I can't do anything about your trust level. So I would just simply say, then don't give it here. Like, and I'm serious about that. Like the Bible says uh, not to give under compulsion, 
and to be a cheerful giver. And man, if you don't trust me, uh, um, then don't give it here. Like, give, give, it, give it somewhere else. But man, if you trust me as your pastor and this is the place where you're spiritually fed and you're on mission with us, then, then trust God in the pro- And know this, I take it very seriously that one day I will stand before God and he will hold me accountable to the way that the dollars were stewarded around here. And I'm way more afraid of God than I am you. So just understand that. So um, besides all that, um, somebody asked me, somebody knew what I was teaching on this last week. And they're like, man, are you nervous to teach on money? And I'm really not. Because the Bible, because Jesus taught on it so much and because the Bible addresses it so much. And it has a tendency to be one of the number one issues of stress in our lives. And I just learned a long time ago as a pastor, I'm kind of like a quarterback. Sometimes I just got to stay in the pocket and throw the pass and I'm going to get hit and I just know it. As long as I can make the pass, that's fine. Because once again, uh, God's got a bigger truck than you do, and I want to make sure that I'm teaching the whole counsel of God. And I just know that, you know, you know some of you won't like, like it, and that's okay. I still believe in these principles. And not only that, I believe in the vision and mission of our church. And for me, like, I, I just, I want to show you something. I've got some good news and I've got some bad news. Here, here's the bad news. I want to show you this graph right here. Do you know that um, uh, from all the way back to the 1940s, uh, church attendance in the Western world has been on a steady decline throughout most of our lifetimes, but it's accelerated here lately. And in fact, the pandemic has even accelerated it even more. And some would even say that that trend line right there can't be reversed, that we've been in it so long that the vortex of that, like we're caught up in it and we're just kind of racing towards more and more like irrelevance. I'm actually not that intimidated by that line because God's power is made perfect in weakness. And uh, the whole principle, the mustard seed, like the city on a hill, a bright light. And like the, like the bride of Christ has been through a lot in the last 2,000 years. I don't think that trend line is going to take her down. Uh, now let me give you some good news. Um, did you know that um, the slowest generation to come back physically to church since COVID is boomers? But the generation fastest to return is millennials. And I actually look at that and I'm like, I mean, I see like a lot of optimism and a lot of encouragement in that, that the future of the church is in really bright hands, but we are on this precipice. I just want you to, like, we're not playing church here. Like, we're not just like showing up every week and singing a few songs and hopefully have like a little entertaining message that, you know, is, you know, you can apply one or two things to your life. We're literally trying to change the world. And the church is God's plan A. So here's, here's my desire. I, I don't have any desire to do anything else with my life um, than be a pastor. And I don't have any desire to be a pastor with any other church than this one. And for some of you, that's good news or bad news, depending upon how you like want to receive that. So, but, but I just want to say this. Uh, so uh, God, um, if you would, like for the next uh, 15, 20, 25 years, whatever it is, whatever run we have, God, would you, uh, here's what I want to do in my lifetime. I want to make it the biggest impact for your kingdom as I possibly can before I go to the grave. And I desire to take uh, our shoulder as a church and lean it in to those lines that we see there and maximize the opportunities with reaching the next generation. And what if, what if, go with me on this, what if we could reverse the trends of the declining church? It's, it's not up to our church alone, don't hear me say that. But what if we helped? What if we helped reverse the trends and gave people help and hope? Guys, I can't think of a better thing to be a part of than the mission and the vision that God has given us as a church. And it requires resources to be able to do that. 
And I know that when you get a group of people that are trusting God with their finances, there isn't anything that God can't do through them. So when I was a younger pastor, I'll, I'll close with this. I, I sat down with a mentor of mine, uh, a guy by the name of Bob Russell. Some of you might recognize that name. Bob served as the pastor of Southeast Christian Church down the road in Louisville, Kentucky for over 40 years and just did an incredible job. Bob was filled with all kinds of wisdom. I learned so much from him. And I remember sitting down and having lunch with him one day and he asked me how I felt about teaching on money and personal finances. And so we were talking about that and he goes, you know, Aaron, he said, don't ever shy away from it. And he goes, every time I taught on money and personal finances, do you know what went up? Now, I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed. So I just looked at him and I was like, the budget? And he was like, no, every time I teach on money, baptisms go up. And he said, here's why. Because if people are willing to trust their finances to Jesus, what else are they gonna keep from him? God desires your heart. And so today in these last few moments together as we just do a little reflection, can I just ask you, regardless of who you are, where you are right now, what's the one thing that you needed to hear today? And it's very possible that maybe the one thing you needed to hear today is actually the same thing that's made you a little angry today because the Holy Spirit wants to convict and push and prod. And right now, God desires you just to trust him in this very personal area of your life. Please put money in its place and God upon the throne of your heart. Father, thank you that you are provider and that we are steward because that takes a whole bunch of pressure off. Father, forgive me where I tried to do your job for you and as the flyer, I try to catch the catcher. God, I'm just assuming I'm not the only one. So today, I just ask that just in, in these last few moments together, that we would resist leaving early, that we would resist getting up out of the seat and running for the door. But we would just sit there long enough to say, I'm listening. I'm listening. What is it that you want me to do? You know, you asked Elijah to do something very uncomfortable. You asked this widow to do something uncomfortable. So what uncomfortable thing God, are you asking me to do right now? Speak, for your servant is listening. We ask this in Jesus' name.